Welcome to Coogan Knows the Law. I'm attorney Jim Coogan. I'm sitting down with emergency room physician and attorney, Dr. Peter McCool. So while Coogan knows the law, I don't know emergency room medicine, and certainly not the way Dr. McCool knows it. We'll be talking to Peter about why he decided to learn the law after working as a doctor for the early part of his career, what it's like to practice law as a doctor, and lastly, what everyone really wants to hear, which is what really happens in the emergency room after dark. But first, this episode is brought to you by Coogan Gallagher. The law firm of Coogan Gallagher is a personal injury firm that concentrates on representing people who have been injured as a result of someone else's negligence or while they're at work. So if you're looking to speak to an attorney about something like that, please contact us at cgtrial.com or you can call us at 312-782-7482. So here I am with Dr. Peter McCool. Welcome to the show, Peter. Hey, thanks. It's great to be on. Um, I think that it's really fascinating that you work in both of these fields, uh, but I'd like to start from the beginning and, and have you tell us a little bit about where it all started as a doctor. Sure. Well, I trained um, at, in terms of medical school at the University of Wisconsin, uh, Madison, um, go Badgers, and uh, you know, in a big 10 state, got to do the plug there. Uh, and then I did residency actually here, right down the road uh, in Park Ridge at um, Resurrection Medical Center. Then I'm not sure if it's still called that, but um, that was a wonderful training experience. We uh, just got exposed to the sickest and most critical patients there and then also rotated as most uh, Chicago programs do through Cook County and through Sinai for our trauma rotations, which it really prepares you for going out there in the real world. Um, and after that, uh, I took a faculty role after I graduated up at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, I was there for three and a half years, and it was a great, great place. So I you know, worked in the emergency room, a really uh, busy place, a level one trauma center. I had an active uh, flight program, you know, transplant. All the sickest people would seem to bypass like 30 hospitals and come there. So you really, even though you were the supervising physician, we're still learning quite a bit as far as all of these different specialties. And I'll come back to why that's important in my new role uh, a little bit later on. But um, that was a wonderful experience. I flew on the helicopter, uh, taught both in the medical school and the residency um, for training emergency medicine residents there. And um, it, it was just a great time, but decided to come back to Chicago. I admittedly really missed the big city and, you know, um, it's just a great place. You know, this is home for us. And so, um, you know, came back and I was at um, Illinois Masonic uh, for a number of years. Well, before we get back to Chicago, I want to follow up with that a little bit. So tell us a little bit more about what it means. You were just starting out as a doctor, but you already have a faculty position. Yeah. Yeah. It, It actually was a little strange. So you went quite literally from, you know, now you're the trainee uh, to you're the trainer in just a matter of, could have been days. Uh, I, because it, it takes a little bit of time to get credentialed at, you know, different hospitals, Wisconsin in particular, the university has a really um, tough uh, credentialing path. So it took, oh man, probably four or five months. And so, uh, you know, I actually just had some time. I just traveled a little bit, you know, uh, studied for my boards, that kind of thing. <clears throat> and, you know, I was young and single. I didn't really have a lot of expenses. So that was okay to do then. Um, and, but yes, it was uh, a very, uh, I think, eye opening experience because I, I recall as a medical student rotating uh, up in Hennepin uh, County Hospital in Minneapolis um, when a, a very seasoned, very well known emergency medicine physician who's authored, I don't know how many books and and chapters of the most read textbooks. He um, had told me at one point, you know, you won't stop being scared coming into a shift for probably about five or six years. He said, at that point, probably you've seen just about everything you could possibly think of. And, you know, I I feel like that was probably pretty accurate. You know, these days, Not much scares me. What scares me these days is resources, but we'll talk about that later. Um, But you had an opportunity. So you're already dealing with, these are 
medical students and you're teaching them how to be a doctor already. Already. Yeah. What, did, what was that experience like? It was great. I think, you know, I really uh, love the academics and the teaching. You know, um, I remember also another, you know, great piece of advice from another uh, former mentor faculty of mine where he said, you know, just be humble. You know, if you don't know the answer to a question, just say it. You know, it doesn't matter um, because I did have some, you know, uh, faculty along the way who would just sort of make things up and then just stake their ground and be insistent that they couldn't possibly be wrong. Let and me guess. At some point, you started to recognize when things were being made up. Yeah, it well, was obvious to you. I actually made the mistake of pulling a bunch of research articles to show the particular attending that he was wrong. And that, <laughs> that let's just say that didn't work out in my favor. And so... Um, yeah, that uh, I, I learned early on not not to necessarily do that, uh, but you know, and and so it, it was a little nerve wracking at first. I have to admit, you know, all of a sudden you're responsible for training these these students, and they're looking to you when yeah, they don't know the answer because they don't know many answers yet. And also, you know, the residents, um, you all of a sudden go from doing all the procedures, so intubating someone and putting them on life support and putting in a central line and, you know, all of these various procedures that are life, you know, sort of saving, uh, you now have to give that to someone else so they can learn. And that's uncomfortable. Is that even that that's probably makes you a little bit nervous, right? Oh man. At first, you know, you're sort of hovering right over their shoulder, which I'm sure probably didn't help with their level of anxiety. Uh, but as time goes on, you realize that, you know, people feed off of your sort of level of calmness. And uh, I also had another, you know, uh, may he rest in peace, former mentor of mine uh, who told me early on in my medical student days in the emergency department, he had said, you know, things can be just falling down all over you. The world could seem to be coming to an end and you could be scared out of your mind, but don't show it. And, you know, because everybody will feed off of that. If you have a calm demeanor, everybody will have a calm demeanor for the most part. And he was so spot on, you know, uh, it's just been something that I've gone back to over the years. And people actually comment on that after a major, let's say, code or, you know, a big trauma where, you know, they say, you know what, I really like working with you. And, and I like the most about that is, you don't freak out. You don't panic. And, you know, I don't sometimes share with them or at least early on that, oh, I was definitely panicking. But, yeah. you know, it's it, it really works because when people are calm and they see sort of the captain of the ship, I guess, if you say, is, is not losing his mind, th then the communication is better. People think more clearly and, you know, they can also learn better. You know, I've I've you know, there's all these, um, I guess, nightmare stories of, um, you know, these supervising doctors, you know, being just mean to residents and, you know, throwing things and yelling and, you know, this sort of uh, process you have to go through as a doctor of, you know, getting berated and, you know, humbled before you can sort of move on. You know, it's that sort of that ritual that, you know, supposedly everyone has to go through. I Break never, you down before they build you up, sort yeah, of old school mentality. And, and, oh, man. And I never bought into that, you know, because I, I just felt like, People don't learn that well when they're focused more on, oh, man, you know, how is this doctor going to treat me, you know, as opposed to, yeah, okay, you know, so you didn't know that answer. Now you do, you know, that's okay. Seems to me there's enough fear or concern on the doctor, on this learning doctor's part, worrying about the patient, let alone, instead of being focused on whatever reaction they're getting from their professor or their uh, instructing doctor they're attending. 100%. And, you know, in, in the emergency department, you know, in most of these cases where you're bringing in the residents and the students because it's a very critical case, you know, the time is of the essence and you don't want to cloud that with, you know, making them you know, scared. Uh, just, I always tell them, you know, you can approach me with any question. You can ask me anything. No question is a bad question. You know, and that's how you learn. But I, I do believe, you know, and, and all of us, for the most part, I, I haven't yet come across one of those Doogie Hauser teenager type doctors. I'm sure they're out there. But, you know, I just feel like adult learners um, are just a different breed. And so, you know, you have to cater to that population. And, um, 
it, it was something that I, I always felt was very important uh, in terms of teaching, but you know, I really did enjoy it. I, you know, started off in academics, then went to a little bit of community where I worked down in Harvey uh, at Ingalls Memorial Hospital for a bit, then um, simultaneously sort of went up to Illinois Masonic. And again, there was teaching, but actually took it to another level where I taught a second year medical student actual class, like in the medical school itself at UIC. Okay. And, you know, that was an interesting class. It was a more of like a clinical sort of medicine class where we deal with, you know, in sort of the classroom setting, um, just the, the practice of being a doctor and that relationship between the doctor and the patient and various topics throughout the, the semester. And yeah, I came to find out early on that my course that they were taking was like something like 60% of their grade for the whole year. I mean, it was just, you know, so that was a lot of pressure because, you know, I want these students to do well. I really uh, felt that was very important. And, but I also wanted them to learn and not, you know, see the class as sort of a slack off kind of class, you know? So we made it kind of fun, but also a good learning environment. And, you know, they all did really well. So that was um, a great experience. And what was the subject matter of that class? Oh, man, you know, it varied because um, they had uh, various topics. So I would actually often give them a project uh, to sort of go out and and talk about. So uh, one of them that stands out was sort of talking about, you know, remember, these aren't, you know, emergency medicine students. These are just second year medical students. Who knows what they wanted to go into. Mm -hmm. Uh, But one of the projects I really thought was just so important, and it, it still continues to be important, uh, was health disparities and, you know, different socioeconomic groups. And in particular in Chicago, so they had gone out and done some research in another uh, class. And then they used that research and sort of built on it and gave us this really great presentation on, you know, food deserts in the inner city and, you know, just different sort of ways to access healthcare based on where you live and how your zip code can affect your longevity and your lifespan. And it's just, you know, it's just eye-opening that here we are in this this country, you know, and this is happening right under our noses. So you were looking at this, was that 10, 12 years ago that you were uh, teaching yeah. this class? Yeah, this was, uh, let's see, it would have been, um, actually it was 2012. So yeah, yeah, gosh, when you say it out loud, it sounds crazy. But I didn't mean yeah. to put you on the spot there, no, Doc. It, it was about, uh, yeah, you're right, like nine, <laughs> nine years ago, man. Oh, wow. Because that's, I mean, that subject is ever present and it's really, it continues to be, it's an issue right now. There's, there's been a whole feature this past couple of weeks I've been reading about looking at where food deserts still exist and persist in the state of Illinois and around the Chicagoland area. Um, But it's interesting that you were already looking at that back then. Did that, did that research, the presentation, did it turn into anything? Did they publish something or how did that turn out? I do believe it, it got published. Um, I, I just don't, you know, recall the the journal that it was published in. But in that sort of, um, there's, uh, gosh, a, a number of faculty over there at UIC um, who, you know, in collaboration probably with, you know, the Cook County Health Department and probably some of the other schools too, just do a wonderful job of continuing to research in that area and, you know, sort of looking at what ways can we change this to improve it, you know, and it, it's um, such a big deal. It, you know, and, and on the flip side of that, you know, we go from urban to now where I work in the emergency setting is in rural America, you know, and so I had worked in rural Southern Illinois for quite some time, uh, just, you know, back starting like maybe 2016 or so. And now I currently work way, way up North in Wisconsin, but very, very small towns. And, you know, when I say town, I mean, the town itself might have 2000 people, maybe, you know, but then you have all these little areas where, I mean, they're, they're not even a town. These people live way out in the country. And, you know, I see these patients come in. I mean, and it's, it's a very similar situation. You know, and they, these are emergency room patients. Yeah. And, and they don't have access to good health care or a lot of times food or, you know, so many different things because they may be so, you know, sort of impoverished, they don't have a vehicle or, you know, they have no more family or you know, they just can't afford uh, their medicines or what have you. And it, it's a similar thing, you know, it's just, 
you know, they have more of a, a distance and access to resource issue. Whereas, you know, in the inner city, you know, that the resources are nearby, you know, relatively speaking in terms of distance, but it just, it still doesn't work. And, you know, we just, as I think a, a society have to do a better job at, at that, but that's a whole nother podcast. Well, I guess, you know, the issue that you're raising is you're seeing the product of an emergent situation where things have gone wrong, but you know that there are so many preventative things in terms of nutrition, medication, a primary care physician, preventative medicine, Absolutely. that if those things had been done along the way, you may, that person, that patient may not have ended up in your emergency department. Yeah. And that's, you hit the nail on the head there. It's, um, we're sort of the culmination of a, a bad process, you know, where if we shifted our focus on, you know, wellness, uh, and prevention and, you know, getting good access to healthcare so that our society was overall a lot more healthy, we wouldn't have the, you know, just dramatic numbers of, you know, cardiovascular disease and stroke and diabetes and all these, these things that come sort of with that poor access and poor nutrition. And, you know, so I think, yeah, it, it's just, there's so many factors there. I know that it, it's, it's hard to, you know, for, I guess, solve easily, but, um, you know, and some big changes would probably have to be made, but I think it's doable. It's just, we have to figure out a way to make it work. I think at some point, you know, or our healthcare system, which is already just taxed beyond belief, mm-hmm. is, is only going to, you know, become more taxed, and that's that's a that's a tough thing. And it, because at the end of the day, where most of these issues at the end of the line, they end up in the emergency department, and it's just as the population ages, we're seeing you know overwhelming volumes, but we're not replacing the doctors or you know providers at the rate where we need to. And, you know, we're bringing in mid-level providers, you know, nurse practitioners and physician assistants, and that helps fill a dramatic need, but we still need the doctors too. You know, that's, that's the hard part. Well, and you've identified it's one of the big public health gaps right now. It's not just the things we just talked about. It's also the educational part of it so that people can have a better concept of how they could take care of themselves differently not always the easiest thing to do to eat healthy when you got some bad options out there. Yeah. And sometimes the pills don't feel great. You get side effects and you don't necessarily want to take them. But if you can stave off those chronic issues from turning into a catastrophe, then you don't find yourself at the mercy of nice, compassionate people like Peter, but overwhelmed sometimes. Yeah. No, that that's, uh, that's a hundred percent true. And I think, you know, um, Society is, I think, focusing more on, you know, health and, and wellness, but um, that sort of lag time before we get there, that's that's the big X factor. So we'll see, I guess. So you, you know, you, you went from a very challenging field uh, and decided to do something much simpler and go to law school just a few years ago. Yeah. Um, what drove you to, speaking of mental health and wellness, what drove you to make that decision? <laughs> well, yeah, I get that quite often. And I think um, a lot of folks think I'm nuts, but, you know, believe it or not, there are a lot of doctor lawyers out there. I mean, you know, it's not going to feel like a football stadium or anything, but um, there's, there's many more than I originally had thought, but the reasons behind my, you know, choice were, I guess, a multitude of factors. So first, um, I was always fascinated with the law. You know, I actually had um, sort of dreams of becoming a police officer at one point in time. And so had gone through the initial stages of the New York Police Department uh, hiring process and um, just life situations, put that on hold. But, um, you know, I, I was enjoying my emergency medicine job and, you know, life was just kind of moving along. Um, but, you know, at some point, what I began to realize is that you know, the, the folks who, you know, could do a good job of, you know, directing how things go, making, you know, care better and helping to reduce costs, um, you know, we're not given those powers anymore, you know, meaning medicine was slowly becoming much more uh, business oriented as opposed to patient care oriented, at least in my opinion. You know, of course, uh, I probably have a lot of colleagues, especially in the administrative world and healthcare administration who would maybe disagree with that. And, and I understand, you know, but 
I also do understand that, sure, you know, hospitals and health systems do have to make money or how do you stay operating, you know. But I ran into, over the years, a number of instances where, you know, the docs would bring ideas to the administration and they would just absolutely be shot down um, because, well, no, we can't afford to do that, you know. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, it was sort of proving how, you know, we could just make things better for patient care, for patient safety. Um, and, and it just didn't seem like there was any interest in that. And so that sort of lack of, you know, the ability to help create a better experience, you know, better emergency experience, that's what sort of fueled my decision to, you know, I need a, an exit strategy here. Um, not sure if I'll ever 100% give up emergency medicine. I mean, my you know, dream is to be a full-time, you know, uh, trial lawyer doing medical malpractice and nursing home cases. But, um, you know, I, so I kind of do both full-time now uh, while I'm making this transition. But um, mm-hmm. it, it is fun. I mean, people say, you know, oh, you're going to miss the, the ER when you're done. And, you know, to some extent, and I have to say, you know, I'm at a, a group now, a facility now where, you know, they they really do care you know what the docs sort of say and what the staff says there's a little bit more feedback or responsiveness there yeah absolutely and it it really does make your experience uh working a lot better you know and so um i think when you find that right place um you know i necessarily wouldn't give up but you know you have to remember full-time at at this type of job where i work a lot of times 48-hour shifts full-time is only six days a month. So it's, uh, you know, really theoretically you could do both full-time for a long time. I don't want to do that. I mean, I (laughs) I have, you know, I do enjoy free time too. And, you know, I have four kids. Well, you could fool us. I mean, (laughs) I I think you just said it. You've also got four kids. (laughs) Yeah, four kids, an amazing wife. And so. So you still remember what free time is? Sometimes. Yeah. Okay. You know, but, but no, it's really been great. And so that was what fueled that decision, but I wanted it to be, you know, you're in a marriage, it's a shared decision-making there. And so my wife was kind enough to, you know, let me go to law school. And, you know, that's not a small thing. I I don't take that lightly. You know, there was um, a lot of the times where, you know, in law school, I I wasn't home, I was studying. I, between studying, I still worked 80 plus hours a week in the ER, you know? And so um, it was definitely um, hard, but I think more so, probably harder on her because she was really a single parent for four years there, you know, and um, minus the summer times, you know, when I have a little bit more time off. But um, so I really give her all that credit and, you know, I couldn't have done it without her. And so that's, that's number one. And um, that was really, I guess, how this all happened. And so um, at the time, you know, Loyola had just started uh, here in Chicago, just started their um, weekend program where, instead of the traditional night school, you know, Monday through Thursday, like five to to nine or five to 10, they would do um, every other weekend, you'd be on campus on Saturday and Sunday from like 8.30 to 4, 4.30. Okay. And I did that for four years and it was a great experience. You know, I got to meet a ton of uh, folks from just different varied professions. You know, there's some government Department of Defense people who couldn't talk about their jobs and politicians. Um, who know. wouldn't stop talking about their jobs. <laughs> right, exactly. And that's 100%. <laughs> no, and, and, you know, just and a dentist. And, you know, so it was, it was just really uh, a great group of people. And, um, you know, you learn so much. I feel like it, it really, you know, prepares you at least as much as, you know, it can for the real world. And, you know, unfortunately, in my case, um, COVID happened right when uh, I graduated. So, you know, um, welcome to the practice of law and to a hundred year pandemic. It was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it was very, um, I guess, just not how I had envisioned things going, um, you know, because during uh, law school, I um, was able to work with some fantastic trial lawyers and judges and you know, really had kind of this nice path mapped out and, you know, all ready to go, um, you know, job offer was, you know, more or less uh, handed to me just 
then that happened. And so yeah, people were saying, you know, just give it a few years. We'll see what happens. And I, I just, I wasn't really going to hit the pause button. So um, ended up, you know, sort of expanding my search. And, you know, this sort of shows how important connections are. Um, just, you know, a person who knew a person um, sort of led me to working with uh, a pretty well-known um, trial lawyer out in D.C. Um, and you know, he then subsequently got me uh, the job at the firm that I was with out there. And it was a great experience. You know, I worked um, exclusively on medical malpractice cases and, you know, really uh, got to see what that litigation is like, you know, as we are coming out of the pandemic. So, um, you know, I had started with them in 2021. Uh, so, you know, trials were starting to happen again. And so- What was the experience like reading a set of medical records that you weren't part of the care team? This wasn't one of your patients. You're actually looking at it to find those errors or yeah. you know that something bad happened and you suspect that there may be something wrong. Yeah. But what was that experience like? Because I'm sure that's like diametrically opposed <laughs> to what you'd been doing as a physician. You know, in a way it is, but there's uh, some overlap, you know, so... In the emergency department, when patients come in, um, if I have, you know, their records in our, you know, medical record system, um, I, I always go through that sort of with a fine tooth comb to, you know, just know more about my patients because it really helps inform a lot of the times, especially if, let's say, the patient's unconscious or something, then I can get much more history because they just can't give it. Or, you know, I had a recent case where I did have a guy come in very unstable, unconscious, um, and the family literally came, dropped him off, uh, and left, and didn't didn't care, didn't you know, give us any history, nothing, <laughs> and so you know, all I could get to know anything about this guy was going through the record after I made sure I could actually leave the room for like five minutes. But um, so there is that sort of um, that familiarity with looking through you know the various specialties records and you know. Uh, studies and things. And so when I, you know, have a case either come into my office or that I'm working with a colleague on, you know, it it's it's interesting to go through the records because in a lot of the times, you know, I'll, I'll work with uh, other attorneys who you know, do this type of practice and, you know, they'll say, what do you what do you think about this case? Or, you know, what am I missing here? Or, you know, who do I need to get a hold of? And um, for me, it's, you know, a pretty quick read, you know, mm-hmm. I, I sometimes take that for granted because there are just a lot of complex things in there that to me are, you know, it, it's almost like, you know, speaking a foreign language, I suppose, um, because I couldn't imagine, you know, what would that all mean to me was when I was like a first year medical student, you know, probably really hard. It's hard to take your brain back into that oh, that place before you learn these things, You'd have right? To, yeah, I mean, I can't even imagine having to like look up, you know, what does this mean and what's this procedure and all that. And so, you know, I can get through these records really, really quickly. But, you know, I can also spot things where, for example, I, I had a case recently where, you know, someone brought it you know, to me to ask, we don't think there's a case here. What do you think? Because, uh, a legal nurse consultant had, you know, read through the um, the chart, and based on if you just looked at what the providers wrote, you really would have a hard time saying, "Oh, yeah, well, they deviated from this standard of care, and you know, we have a good case here." But some of the language that the providers used were just things that were really out of character, and so and it. To the point where it just wouldn't make sense where mm. why they would write that unless they wrote it after the fact and sort of postdated it. Which, and that's a suspicion that you could have because of how you read those records differently. Right. And and that's, you know, what I had brought to the attention of uh, the colleagues of mine who you know, brought that case. And so, you know, this is and again, this is sort of, um, you know, uh, a case not around here. It's it's somewhere else in the country. But, you know, a family you know, who's lost a loved one, um, you know, may have very well lost out on a chance to pursue justice, you know, and and now they can. You know, mm-hmm. these cases, like you know, are, are never guaranteed. They're incredibly hard, and the odds are stacked against us lawyers who do this work. But nonetheless, you know, if you have a good case, um, 
you know, you take it and, and you fight. And, you know, so I'm happy that this family, you know, has at least the chance, you know, the door wasn't closed so that they can at least get some sense of, all right, even if, let's say they don't win the trial uh, or there's no settlement or what have you, even if they'll still feel like, well, they tried, that's all they could do. You know? Sure. Whereas somebody told them, no, you know, there's no, no case here um, when there was. You know? Yeah. Especially when it took a little bit of digging and some specialized knowledge to find those nuggets to realize there may be more than meets the eye there. Yeah. You know, and, and that's, you know, I always, you know, I guess value the continued learning. I mean, I still feel like from my colleagues in the trial lawyer arena, I learned so much, you know, from just watching uh, these folks in action and, and, and listening to, you know, how do they approach these cases and what do they do? And um, the latest area that I've sort of really been focused on is sort of this audit trail stuff. And that's probably a whole nother podcast, but, you know, um, but that is, you know, I guess another tool in the toolbox. So we can look at these cases through a different lens where we may have said just based on the, you know, face value of the medical records, there's no case. Now we can maybe see, you know, actually pursue a case where maybe before we wouldn't have. And I think you're right. We won't get too deep into it, but when, when Dr. McCool mentions the phrase audit trail, what you're talking about there is that because medical records are kept in an electronic system these days in hospitals and in doctor's offices, there's actually an opportunity to go back and see when records were created, whether they were changed, when they were changed. Those are all things that you can access now. Absolutely. Not easy to do. No, it's, it, it's not. And, it, you know, if you don't know what you're doing, you may get a whole bunch of data that you just don't know what to do with. You or know? you're overwhelmed with that data. 100%. So this is uh, like the old legal movies where the big defense firm does a document dump. Yeah. You know, the plaintiff's attorney asks for everything <laughs> and a truck pulls up with yeah. 16,000 pages of stuff. Exactly. But this is the digital version. Yes. Yeah, so how are you going to do that? I mean, and that's 100% true. And so um, there's really just such cool things you can do with that data to, I think, really help serve your, you know, your patients slash clients. It's strange for me to, you know, leave the word patients. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But, well, speaking of leaving the word patients, tell us about the current venture that you have going now. Now you're back in the Chicagoland area and you've got your new law firm. Well, yeah. Um, well, thank you. So I do. Uh, I opened a law firm downtown here uh, in Chicago uh, called Justice RX. Um, and I'll give you the website. It's um, www.justicerxlaw.com. Also, www.prescriptionforjustice.com because my philosophy is Justice Rx is your prescription for justice. It's my little tagline there. <laughs> I was about to ask you that question. Is this this because you've got the prescription for everyone to that, find justice? That's I, perfect. That's the hope. And I'll give you um, just the, the number to call is 312-776-2967. Um, and I'm very open to you know, just simple calls. If another attorney colleague has questions or even a potential client, you know, if you're not sure, maybe is there a case? Yes or no. You know, the, and I think what I'll do here is close that loop of when I was early in my career working with all of these varied specialties, you know, the benefit of that pays dividends now because I've literally dealt with every specialty and subspecialty and sub-subspecialty that there is. I mean, over those years. And so I saw how they handle these cases, what they do, what they shouldn't do. Mm. And, you know, it's just, it was such a tremendous experience. And now, you know, even though my main, you know, practice is emergency medicine, if let's say there's an oncology case or let's say, you know, a, a pediatrics, you know, case, I can definitely tell you, you know, is there a case there or not? And, you know, um, at least, or could there be, I suppose, let's say, just because I've dealt with, there's not a whole lot that I haven't dealt with, I guess. Sure. And so that just pays dividends now in terms of how was that helping me way back then? But, you know, right now I can help serve, you know, our clients that we have in this area. All right. So this is what I think the listeners might be waiting for. People find out that you're an emergency room doctor. I think they have some assumptions that you've seen some unusual things, some crazy things, some crazy situations. Um, 
I'm just going to ask it. Tell us the weirdest story that you can, or at least the first one that comes to mind from all your adventures over the years dealing with people in emergency rooms. Oh, man. Well, I, there is one that sort of always stands out, uh, and, and I'll talk about that. I mean, there there are honestly just so many. Uh, we'll just have to come back and do this every month <laughs> to get another, so. another story out of you. I suppose so, but... Um, the one that I have, you know, I was working at a very large uh, trauma center. Um, and you know, so we have, you know, residents and students and fellows and, you know, there's trauma attendings and surgical fellows and, and residents and students. So uh, really well staffed, um, but also it's a very, very busy place in a very, you know, urban, densely packed area. And so <clears throat> this particular time, uh, we got a call that they're bringing in, you know, a trauma, uh, but, you know, it, it, they said that it was a mental health related issue. So I was trying to figure out, okay, well, what could we possibly be, you know, getting ourselves into? And now the the thing about it is when you're at a trauma center, the trauma attending, meaning, you know, the supervising uh, trauma doctor, uh, who's, a, who's a surgeon, they have to be within... I think it's like 15 minutes from the hospital or something like that. To be close enough in proximity to yeah. show up if they need to do surgery. But if you get a phone call from an ambulance that says we're five minutes out, uh, you're it, you know? And so we, as the emergency uh, supervising doctors, we worked with our residents and sort of walked them through. We would handle all the airway stuff on the traumas. And then, you know, the surgical folks would do sort of whatever. And that's when someone's having trouble, they can't breathe or their yeah. airways collapsed. Right. They yeah. need an airway because yeah. otherwise they're not going to make it. Yeah. Or Sorry. Like, oh, no, that's, that's just want to jump true. in and make sure the audience knows what we're talking about. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I forget sometimes. And so, you know, or if they're unconscious, what have you. So the interesting thing, I, I just, it was the ambulance you know, pulls up. So, yep, they had about a five minute um, ETA. So, you know, very short transport time. And we don't really know much else um, about him other than he's got a cut, uh, you know, across his neck. And okay, I don't. That could mean a whole bunch of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I remember distinctly they wheel this guy in, and this gentleman was probably six foot five, like two hundred and ninety pounds, just solid muscle, like very big guy. You know, he could have been a professional athlete for all we would have known. And he's not saying anything. He's not screaming or moaning. Uh, and he, but he he does have a kind of a white bandage over his neck. I'm thinking, okay, well, if he's got a cut, you know, there's no bleeding going on through that, so it can't be too bad, you know. And the medics say, well, you know, Doc, uh, we didn't want to put in an IV because he's, you know, he's pretty combative, but if we leave him alone, he's okay. Okay, how are we going to approach this? And um, so, you know, I'm looking at the guy, and I say, hello, sir, how are you doing? And, you know, just... You're in a safe place. Take good care of you. Well, what had happened was this gentleman um, had been struggling with mental illness for quite some time and decided that he wanted to end his life, you know. And so he drank a bunch of alcohol, took a bunch of unknown pills, you know, uh, and that didn't work. So then he uh, took a drill um, and actually drilled into his sternum. Oh, my you know? God. But I was so just fascinated. The, the safety mechanism of the drill just stopped it. So he had a hole, but once it hit bone, uh, it stopped. And so he, he got very upset about that. Um, then he went into the bathtub, um, and that's when he sort of slashed his uh, you know neck. And then the bathtub was overflowing, and that's when, you know, the water was dripping down the apartment below. They called, you know, uh, 911, and that's, they broke the door down, and that's how they discovered him. Well, jeez. The, so, now, fast forward, we're, we're at the, you know, in the trauma bay, and the patient, you know, smiles at me, you know, and says, hey, doc, how are you doing? And um, I said, can I look at that, you know, wound there? Because, again, at this point in time, we don't have an IV or anything. And he says, sure. So I just lift it up and I see that he cut. I mean, it was just miraculous how he did this. He cut pretty much cleanly through his windpipe, his trachea. So that was just wide open. Uh, but 
when he would bend his neck down, it would close, and so he could talk. Oh, my God. But if he lifted his head up, it was wide open. <laughs> Holy cow. Yeah, it, but it, it just such an interesting, he missed his major arteries on either side of the neck, you know, called your carotid arteries, and that's why he just laid in the bathtub, and minimal bleeding, you know. Um, and so, I mean, thankfully, you know, he, sure. he, he got saved. Sure. And so, but now I'm thinking, well, how am I going to do this? Because I said, sir, you know, we have to put an IV in you and, you know, you have a pretty large hole in your neck. We got to kind of have to deal with that, you know, and then he just starts to scream and, and rage. And this guy, I mean, was very big, you know, very strong. Presents a whole different problem when that patient oh, is out of control. I mean, he, he could hurt someone. So, I, you know, I said, OK, OK, we, we won't do that. Let's just well calm now. So then he calms down. And, you know, I said, I just say because. I told, you know, that at this point, there's a pretty large audience. The trauma uh, attending, the supervising trauma doctor is still not there. So I still sort of have the role of kind of the supervising doc of the room there. So I pulled the charge nurse aside and, you know, some of the residents and said, well, here's what we have to do. So, you know, we'll just kind of convince him that, hey, everything is all right, you know, um, because unfortunately, he's going to freak out and probably hurt somebody, uh, you know, if we try this. So what I need or eventually hurt himself yeah. more seriously. hundred percent. So, you know, I said, well, what we need to do uh, and have this ready is, you know, I need whoever thinks they could do this the best. Um, I'll distract him and I need someone, you know, to pop an IV in that arm and have about three or four of our biggest people on, you know, either side of, of this gentleman so that when things go down, uh, we'll have a few seconds there because my plan was the nurse is going to take the IV. You know, she'll be scoping out his veins uh, mm-hmm. secretly, you know, while, uh, but, but that was the benefit of having a very muscular guy. You could find yeah. the vein pretty well, easily, yeah, right? Bulging veins. So that was very helpful. Um, so I, I was, you know, going to distract him as, and I, I said, have this medicine just loaded up. Uh, so that as soon as you put that IV in his vein, you just push this medicine and it was a medicine that's designed to, you know, just immediately knock someone out and then another one that would paralyze them, you know. Sure. And we had all our airway equipment, you know, secretly stashed behind, you know, the residents' backs. This is um, a big operation. It was. It, it, but it was the only way I could conceive that we could do this. Otherwise, yeah, otherwise he's going to die or hurt someone else. Right. You know? Right. And uh, because, you know, even though, you know, that wound was limited to the windpipe, you know, we were just. I mean, millimeters from his carotid artery. So if he you know, did anything, he, he could easily tear that. And so the, putting the airway in would actually be easy. You just had to tilt his chin up and put a tube in his windpipe. It was, Ironically, yeah, kind yeah, of, under the he, circumstances. He, he did most of the work for us there. So, Jeez. <laughs> so um, you know, it, it actually went surprisingly well. You know, I was talking to the, the guy about just the things that have been going on. And what I found, one thing that I learned working at a busy urban trauma center slash um, also hospital where it has a very large uh, mental health program is that when you get people that come in that are just angry and want to fight everybody on the planet um, and maybe on some really crazy drugs and so have sort of this superhuman strength, the one thing that calms everybody down is saying, you know, you look like you're hungry. Can I get you like a sandwich or something? And they almost always just stop and look at you and say, well, sure. <laughs> so really that's it, like the it, secret it's sauce the secret sauce they may still want to kill everybody else but you will be their best buddy and and so everybody likes a sandwich doc oh man i tell you and so uh thanks for that you know so i you know was talking to this gentleman hey you know i'll get you a sandwich don't worry about this 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 will all be fine and uh, he's like oh yeah thanks so and while you know we're talking on the opposite side you know i'm standing trying to get him to not really move his neck too much but you know just so he's also a little bit distracted and uh, i had people sort of hovering sort of blocking the view of the nurse at the arm by his elbow there and uh, they were ready to also pin his arm down and so yep it it went like we planned i mean thankfully so we had Mm. the syringes loaded up you know she boom pops the iv in he lets out a big scream and roar and tries to get up and you know so the only thing that happened was then they got the meds in but for that about two seconds while it got pumped into their, his circulation, um, he let out this just like a roar and he 
did flex his neck. And then we started getting some spurts of blood from the neck. So I thought, oh, no, that's not good. And uh, so we quickly laid him down, uh, put the airway in, and you know, put pressure on those wounds in the neck. And, and that was that. So they took him to the surgery. And I never did actually find out. I mean, he survived his traumatic injuries for sure. But um, how he ended up doing long term, that's, I guess, one of the, the downsides of being an emergency physician is I often don't know. You know, uh, well, the next patient comes in yep. and then the next one and then the next one. So <laughs> exactly. And, you know, the, the, the problem is a lot of these folks are just, you know, they're lost to follow up. They move around a lot and, you know, they're sort of transient. So uh, it, it's tough to get, you know, good details in a smaller town. It's actually a lot easier because, you know, people, you know, sort of tend to talk and you everyone kind of knows everybody mm-hmm. or is related to somebody. And so it's not too hard. Usually where a family member will say, oh, hey, you know, you took care of my you know, grandma and, and she's doing great or, you know, whatever it is update wise. But yeah, in, in a city, it's it's a lot more difficult because there's, there's so many different hospitals and yeah. just different things. Well, at a minimum, in a terrible episode in his life, you guys as a team and I think obviously in part due to your strategizing and ingenuity, you guys gave him another chance and hopefully he took advantage of that and you can't control all of that. And obviously he was pretty distraught about oh, yeah. who knows what in yeah. his life and that can be terrible. But uh, yep. I mean, that's anything like that that ends well is a pretty good story. Yeah, and it, you know, you would think that would have been my only experience where I hid the fact I was about to put someone on life support uh you know, that'd be the only time that happened, but it's not. I actually had a, you know, a case, a house fire where the gentleman, uh, you know, younger guy, probably in his mid thirties, um, you know, was struggling with alcohol and was very, very intoxicated and the house started on fire around him. And, you know, so he came in by ambulance and, you know, the problem with burns is that if, and you have to think very quickly, if you, you know, have a case where there's soot on their airway, um, you know, and, and in this guy, all of his facial hair was singed, his eyelashes and eyebrows and, you know, his mouth was full of soot. Um, his airway is going to swell up over the next probably 20 to 30 minutes and close off. And so, you know, at the initial presentation, they might not think anything is wrong. And especially if they're intoxicated. And so. Because he can still breathe oh, and yeah. he has no idea that that, I mean, or, what you just described is a medical phenomenon that normal people wouldn't be aware of. No. And, and let alone you. You try to explain that to somebody uh, who's not, you know, really making good judgment uh, calls and, and sure. not able to understand, um, you know, they'll just, and that's what, exactly what he did. He said, no, I'm okay. I don't need that. You know, and I'm thinking like, I know if I don't do this, you're, you know, when you do go unconscious because your airway collapses, I'll have to cut your neck open and put in a breathing tube that way. And I'd much rather not, you know, I mean, it's not hard and, and done it plenty of times, but it's, um, it's just one of those things where I'd rather prefer to not cut somebody's neck open if possible, you know? Of course. Um, so, you know, it, it, it was, it was sort of one of those things. He was pretty heavily intoxicated. So I could sort of use the fact that this gentleman is in you know, perilous danger, uh, right in front of us to where I'm making a decision on behalf of him you know, to save his life, you know, otherwise yeah. there's a good chance he might not live. And just so happened his mom was there too. And so I said, you know, ma'am, this is what I have to do. Are you okay with that? And she said, absolutely. You know? And so I had mom's blessing. That's helpful. Yeah. Um, and it was the same thing, you know, I, I kind of used that playbook and, you know, but this was at a rural hospital where I, it was just me, one nurse and a tech. And so, you know, it, was, it wasn't easy. And then there's all the other patients in the ER, you know, four or five other patients. But, you know, we sort of pooled all our resources. The paramedics from the ambulance stayed by because they could help out with things too. And so, um, you know, I had told the nice gentleman, you know, let me just, we'll put an IV in just to get you some fluids and, you know, if you need any pain medicine. He was okay with that. Mm-hmm. He just didn't want me to put mm-hmm. a, a tube in his, his throat. And um, so that was a little bit easier. Once we, you know, got that in, you know, we just showed him our little saline and said, look, it's just some saline and here's some medicine, you know. And so then he just went to sleep and we were easily able to put it in and everything was fine. Uh, So, yeah, those are, I guess, two cases that stand out. I mean, um, I've had a number of, you know, cases over the years on the helicopter that were, you know, quite interesting you know yeah but i mean 
again, I, I could fill a whole podcast. With well, those. no, we, we, maybe we'll have to come back and do a few more, but, uh, the, those are good examples of, I mean, this is part of the unique challenge that you have. You're at the forefront. These people are in extremis. There aren't a lot of options, but you know, there's a very specific danger, specific hazard that they aren't even really comprehending. So you have to sort of step in and, and make these decisions. It's a lot of responsibility. It's hard. You know, you never want to feel like you're, you know, doing something against somebody as well, you know, yeah. but um, you have to, you know, understand that in some cases, these people aren't, you know, able to make a rational decision where maybe if they were sober or what have you, or not, you know, uh, suffering from some, even a medical condition where, you know, they're delirious or what have you, um, you know, maybe they would make that right decision. And so it is hard, but, and you do what you can to just check all of the boxes as far as, okay, is this absolutely necessary? Did I take all the steps? I talk to family, et cetera. And, you know, then you just have to live with it. And, and, and then you give them a chance to fight another, live and fight another day. Exactly. And deal with it then. Um, well, thank you for those stories. Anytime. Uh, this this uh, this was a very interesting little interview, Dr. McCool. I appreciate it. So um, we may have to do this again, but obviously very excited to hear about your new venture. Thank you for sharing what's going on with that. Um, and so today has been an episode of Coogan Knows the Law, but he doesn't know emergency medicine nearly to the degree that Dr. Peter McCool does. Although I did get a lot of insights today and I hope everyone else enjoyed the stories and the uh, explanation as to how so much of this works. Oh, thanks for having me on. It was a pleasure and I'm always happy to come back and chat. This episode of Coogan Knows the Law was brought to you by the law firm of Coogan Gallagher. You can find us at 312-782-7482 or at our website, cgtrial.com. And this episode was produced by the great people at Ear for Audio.